This is Wednesday's Women, hosted by Caitlin and Taylor. We invite you to join us in a candid conversation about the roles of women in political organizing and beyond, as we celebrate the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We hope that you find this episode educational, entertaining, and the women we discuss inspiring. If you like what you hear, subscribe and share. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. So as you can tell by the title of this episode, we will be discussing the four waves of feminism. So everybody go get your bras to burn and your pitchforks. But all jokes aside, um, I want to address the idea of feminism before we get too far into this and people start being like, man, you didn't do that right. Um, so feminism, for those of you that don't know, isn't a uh, mean we hate men and we want women to rule the world. <laughs> um, feminism stands for the political, economic, and social equality of the sexes. So again, I will say it for the haters in the back, it is for both genders. Um, if you believe men do not experience inequality in some aspects of life, um, I don't think you've ever thought about the fact that like there are no uh, changing tables and men's restrooms, because I think about that a lot. And also about the fact that uh, a lot of men usually do not come forward when they've been sexually mistreated because, you know, men are supposed to be these strong uh, types where they don't have things like that happen to them. So that is why feminism is not just for women, it is for both genders. Um, it is not the goal of feminism to make women number one, it is to establish equality. And with that in mind, we can start talking about the history of feminism here in the United States. So Taylor, I'll let you take over the first wave of feminism. So the first wave of feminism is thought to really be the first women's movement. Um, it occurred from 1850s roughly to the 1920s, and it grew out of the abolitionist movement. The main goals of the first wave of feminism weren't just political rights. It was actually for women's suffrage, for women's property rights, for women's social participation, and for bodily integrity and freedom. Yeah, because um, wasn't, it, wasn't it like women had no power over their property? Like they literally couldn't even like own property? Yeah, so fun plug about the census. The first couple censuses actually only recorded white men who owned land and like if you weren't a white man over the age of 16 who owned land the United States genuinely didn't care <laughs> they're like okay stay away from us like don't talk to us sounds about right. so yeah that was like a big issue so if you weren't married immediately you really couldn't move away from your parents and gain any freedom because no one would sell you property so imagine not marrying by 20 and living with your parents all through your 20s into your 30s, which was a common issue for women through the mid to late 1800s and early 1900s. And I know whenever I went through my women, my first women in gender studies course in college, uh, we talked about that idea of like the old maid and about how, you know, that's where that idea comes from is an old maid is somebody who never married and lives at home and they like can't move out or anything because how can they even make it on their own without having those freedoms. And that was a huge struggle. And the old maid is actually a really great characterization because another issue women faced who weren't married is that you weren't given a social life. So you weren't invited to parties because no one wanted a single woman around married men. 
they felt that that was too alluring and um essentially the idea was I can't control my husband but I can control the situations I put him in and I'm not going to put him in a situation where I think he'll cheat Hmm. um which is still common today there's still this idea of like he can't go to the bar by himself because if I'm there I can intervene when he's talking to people but if he's by himself I can't and that's a really toxic um environment because you're really realistically yeah you're trying to control the actions of another whenever we should be giving men the like responsibility of being people and being responsible for their actions and if they're going to cheat that makes them a cheater that doesn't mean that it's the woman's fault that they didn't control their husband yeah and there was like just this idea and I mean back then like cheating wasn't even I don't want to say it wasn't that big of a deal but it was just generally accepted like they're gonna step out and you're gonna move past it and he married you be thankful that he married you and he didn't marry um spinster was another thing they called them um but this movement was actually directly correlated with the abolitionist movement because they sought the same goals so abolitionists wanted black americans to have political rights to have their own property rights their own social participation and then of course bodily integrity and freedom was the main goal of the abolitionist movement um because of this many of the early activists overlapped and included big names like sojourner truth elizabeth blackwell jane adams and dorothy day um so we will talk about not every wave having a like definitive starting point we just have like a general idea of like this notion came to be and the wave kind of took off after that but it is thought that the first wave actually does have a specific date and time where it started and that's just because um elizabeth katie stanton held the july 1848 seneca falls convention And at this convention, Stanton, along with several other suffragettes, drafted the Seneca Falls Declaration. Um, This declaration outlined the movement's goals, strategies, and ideologies of all the women participating. So this does give us a clear, um, this is where the movement began and where they really started advocating for themselves. Um, But like I said, that's not the case in every wave of feminism that we see sometimes it's just a general yeah it kind of starts with the third wave is the worst when it comes to that it is so like (laughs) wishy-washy um so the first wave of feminism is typically revered as like this great movement it really started the fight for women's rights and i'm not taking away from that because i do have a lot of things to be thankful for um that came out of this first wave but i also have a lot of privilege that i gained well i didn't gain that i just have and a lot of people in the first wave also had a lot of privilege um the first wave really created white feminism so as we'll go through the summer and discuss different suffragettes you'll notice that a vast majority of them are white women um And this is mostly because the suffragettes weren't fighting for all women to have the right to vote. They were fighting for equality of the sexes. 
which sounds like they mean the same thing. And in today's world, technically they do. But in the late 1800s, black men were not seen the same as white men. And so black women being treated the same as black men still would not be treated the same as white women. I've, I've, I've wondered, like, um, I know one of the ideas behind white feminism was originally they said, oh, well, we want people of color to be included in this, but we don't think that we'll be able to get forward in this goal if we include them because it's going to be even more of a taboo subject but part of me wonders how much of it was that they were not like accepting themselves the feminists of that time um so there are there is research to show groups that worked with black women and wanted black women to be on the same ideal as white women and it wasn't just black women affected this time um, at this time in the United States history, and all of the feminism research I did, I did in relation to the United States. Um, so there wasn't a large Hispanic population. So when I refer to minorities, I'm mostly going to be referring to um, Blacks and the Native Americans were also a huge minority then, and were essentially given fewer rights than Black Americans. Um, which is really sad to think about because Black Americans didn't even have autonomy of their body for part of this. For part of it, they did. Um, so even the most prominent suffragettes actually did work to create this disparity. Um, so Susan B. Anthony and Katie Stanton, who are thought of as like the face of this movement did intentionally exclude black women from their movements. Um, they originally, in the beginning, they weren't allowed to participate at all. They did not want them associated because, um, and I'm not excusing this, it is not right. We need to fight for everyone, not just the people who look like us. But their original fear was if they included black women, they wouldn't be taken seriously. And they felt like if it was just white upper class women, they would be taken more seriously. Um, and really because those women would carry the names of their husbands. And so really even in this movement, it would be their husbands that were taken seriously. Um, as the movement grew and other groups were created, Anthony and Katie Stanton did feel pressured to include minorities. Um, so they did eventually allow participation in their events, but even then the events were segregated and it was, this is, this area is for blacks and these events are for blacks. This area is for um, Native Americans and um, like these events are Native American specific. Um, not all marches were the case, but there are a couple marches where it is noticed noted that black women were made to walk at the end. So all the white women marched and then the black women marched. There are other marches where they all just marched together and it just so happened that, um, you know, you walk with the people you're familiar with and it did create another disparity, which we should never see. But um, I don't want people to think that I'm saying this to dismiss this movement or say this movement isn't as good as the other movements. That's really not it, but I feel like it's important to acknowledge these injustices 
so that feminism moving forward becomes inclusive and intersectional because if it's not then it's not really feminism and i mean as we go forward in this conversation a lot of what we're saying with the first wave is convert converted in the third wave the third wave goes through and tries to address those concerns so um so like i said Kat katie stanton and anthony are really seen as the face of this movement which many people feel is an injustice because sojourner truth was such an influential advocate for women's rights and they feel like had there not been you know this cloud over black people at the time she would have been just as highly regarded as stanton and anthony um, in 1851, she delivered her anti-woman speech at the Women's Rights Convention in Akron, Ohio. Um, and this is really um, seen as the turning point for Black women in the movement. Um, at this point, they were beginning to become empowered and more assertive and spoke out about the disproportionate inequalities. And this speech was one of the ways that white and Black women became closer to working towards fighting for the same thing. Um, and this is when, you know, the events became um, mixed. It wasn't segregated. Well, they were still segregated, but they allowed Black women to attend these events because so many people said, you know, true speech was so inspirational and it was so true that they are women and they are fighting for what we're fighting for. Um, Truth delivered another speech at the American Equal Rights Association in New York in 1867, and she said, if, color, if colored men get their rights and not colored women theirs, you see the colored men will be masters over the women, and it will be just as bad as it was before. Um, so, again, this brings up the idea that Stanton and Anthony were fighting for equality to men, and so they were fighting for equality to their racial counterparts, not as a whole. So there was this fear that um, if black men did get rights, and white women had this fear as well, if black men get rights, they'll actually be more powerful than white women. And that was a concern that was rampant through the suffragette mu movement, which is so terrible to see. And it um, reminds me of like, true. Sorry, it almost reminds me of uh, the issues we see like with some issues of feminism where men are afraid of it because they think women are going to become like overpowering over the men, and instead of it's just like everybody like equaling the playing field, nobody being more powerful than the other. Yeah, that's never feminism has never been about making one group more powerful. It's about recognizing disparities among groups um and that's why um sometimes the first wave is often the most contentious just because the first wave did promote another form of disparity um true speeches brought attention to the movement for not only black women but also white women um and really just women in general were starting to get traction with these speeches of you know, we're saying slavery is wrong, but isn't a woman being owned by a man the same thing as a black man being owned by a white man? Technically, this woman is free, but she can't own a house. She can't go to a party. 
she doesn't children yeah she doesn't get to choose her doctor choose her doctor's appointments um back then it was very common for the husband to set that up if they went and saw a medical professional um so the idea was really women are just being owned and it's not we're not solving any issues um so it was really after the after sojourner truth did this um traveling speech exposition where she held lecture series really all across the country um that feminist coalitions became more integrated um but it is important to note that even during this time private lives continue to be segregated so you may see someone at a feminist coalition and you would fight together and all that but when you went back home at the end of the day you went to different parts of the neighborhood and you shopped in different areas and you didn't acknowledge that connection um and that really continued up through the 1920s similar to how the first wave has a very definitive start it also has a very definitive end um most scholars agree on the idea that the end of the first wave is linked with the passage of the 19th amendment um, in 1920, which granted women the right to vote. Um, this is slightly misleading. It does, in the amendment state that women have the right to vote, um, but in various states, there were still rules that, um, you know, black men couldn't vote, Native American men couldn't vote. And so these minority groups didn't see voting rights until um really up into the 60s there were still states that were preventing minorities from voting which is really terrible to think that like in my grandparents lifetime there were still people being told you can't vote because of your skin color we always want to think that all of this is so far in our past but i mean even the 19th amendment we're celebrating with this podcast the centennial of it only 100 years ago, like 100 years is nothing. It is nothing in the grand scheme of things. Like, that's why it's so important we continue these conversations because it is very, it should be very in the front of our minds because 100 years ago is like yesterday. Yeah. Um, and this one, this was seen as the major victory of the movement. And of course, with the ability to vote came. Um, reforms in higher education and workplace and professions and in healthcare. So they did see some of their other requests being met. Um, property rights was still an area of contention past the 1920s. Women could buy property, but it typically required more co-signers and just more hoops to jump through than a family or a man buying property, um, but it was available to them. Women also started serving on school boards and local bodies. Um, and these numbers have really just kept increasing through the year, through the years. Um, so the 1920s also marked the point in time where women gained access to higher education, um, which now a lot of studies denote that there are more women typically in higher education than there are men. Um, which is really interesting to consider that women have only been allowed access to broad 
forms of higher education for actually less than 100 years because this was more um, your feminine professions, your nurses, your teachers. Um, it wasn't so much doctors, lawyers, business. It's kind of crazy to think that um, higher ed has like been, like you said, it's showing that it's majority women, but yet there's still the pay gap. There is still a pay gap, and it's so wild to me um, going to Clarion and always hearing about, like, they've been around since the 1800s, and, you know, Clarion was here before the suffragette movement and before the waves of feminism, and it's really stood the test of time, and, like, the idea that when Clarion started, women weren't allowed to attend is just so wild to me, which it did, full disclosure for those of you who aren't familiar with Clarion, it did start as a seminary school. Um, so it wasn't always a liberal arts college back in, <laughs> I can't, um, I'm not sure the year they were founded, but in the 1800s, we weren't offering women in gender studies. Um, but it did change throughout the years. It later became um, an, a teaching school and they taught teachers, they actually had schools on the campus so that students would learn as higher education students were being taught to become teachers. and spread out into the world. Um, so it is really interesting to think that only in the last 100 years were women allowed to really be proactive in the higher education experience at Clarion. Um, so there is a little bit of a gap <laughs> between the first wave of feminism and the second wave, a little lull, if you will, um, which is really just, attributed to several things. Um, so the gap spans from the 1920s to the 1960s. And if you're familiar with global history, there were a lot of wars happening. So I mean, the main concern was like, don't die. Um, don't lose your country. So there were like other issues going on. Um, and it was also just the idea that you know, the first movement had ended, goals had been met, and there hadn't really been, the declaration really set those goals forward, but didn't set anything after that. And so they were really just working on continuing to achieve those for that 30 to 40 year span, depending on when you believe the second wave starts and when the first wave ends. Um, the second wave is generally thought to span from the 1960s to the 1980s and focused primarily on sexuality and reproductive rights. Um, the main focus and energy devotion was the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution, guaranteeing social equality regardless of sex. Um, this is also the amendment that fought to guarantee social equality regardless of race. So this was really the first time they were putting um, white men, black men, white women, black women, Hispanics, Native Americans, all of them together and saying we're all equal. Yeah. Um, so like I said in the first movement, there was these groupings and your women were equal to your men's within your groups. So this movement really sought to get rid of those. Um, unlike the first wave, there is no clean cut start 
Um, there were no treaties signed, no declarations. Um, if you had to say, like, this is where it really kicked off and was taken seriously, um, in 1963, John F. Kennedy's Presidential Commission on the Status of Women released a report on gender equality, and that is when people really started to take the movement seriously, but it had been working before that. It just was seen as like, oh, those women are hanging out in their basement doing weird things again. So this wave was actually seen as a delayed reaction to the renewed do domesticity of women. Um, so like I said, there were a couple of wars that happened in between the first and second wave. Following World War II, there were really two big booms that happened in the country. Um, everyone knows the baby boom. It's where we got the term, okay, boomer. Yep. And <laughs> we also saw a huge economic boom that most countries see after a victory in a war. Um, so your country is feeling very patriotic, feeling very elated, having just won a war. Um, so it's not uncommon to see that economic boom. And, you know, a lot of children happening, the economy's doing good, people are living well within their means. So during this time, women did not seek employment. Um, they became re-engaged with domestic and household duties. Um, and many people saw this shift as just natural. They stepped out of the home to work while their husbands were away at war, but now their primary duty is again to take care of the household. But they got that taste of to be a working person and to make your own money and to have aspirations outside of motherly and white duties. And that is a huge part of what comes next because while the husbands were away, the wives were banking, the wives were collecting paychecks and managing finances, they were also voting. They were voting in elections and voting in school boards and making their voices heard. And then the men come home and just take back how it was. And there is this part that felt empty in many homes that felt like I've just lost this power that I had. Because realistically, you know, voting and political action, it is power. Um, I know sometimes power has a negative connotation with it, but it doesn't have to. I mean, you should have power in your community. You pay taxes in it. You should have a say in where your taxes go. Absolutely. Um, and they really craved this, this involvement that they had. And again, similar to the first wave, men were afraid that, you know, the first time they had given it up, the men had lost their voting power and their economic power. So they felt like you couldn't, you couldn't have both. Not men and women could be politically involved, one. Which isn't true. They can both be politically involved and they can both, you know, manage finances in various ways. Um, so this is really what the second wave focused on, in addition to um, clearly the sexuality and reproductive health. Um, so 
there were some important events that laid the groundwork to the second wave. Um, in the 1940s, French writer Simone de Beauvoir examined the notion of women being perce perceived as other in the patriarchal society. She went on to conclude in her 1949 treatise, The Second Sex, that male-centered ideology was being accepted as a norm and enforced by the ongoing development of myths and that the fact that women are capable of getting pregnant, lactating, and menstruating is in no way a valid cause or explanation to place them as the second sex. Um, so while this was introduced in 1949 in France, it was not introduced in the U.S. until 1953. So roughly 10 years before the gender inequality report. Um, and this is still discussed today. You know, you hear of women not receiving promotions or people being afraid to give women jobs because they have to pay maternity leave or I know Caitlin you feel very strongly about um especially the insurance issues medical insurance yeah because like as a nursing manager, um and as someone who wants to go forward and get their master's in women's health like it's so infuriating that sometimes insurance will um, deny certain uh, things to women because they'll see, like, for example, a pregnancy that is without any complications as a pre-existing condi condition, and that just boggles my mind. And, like, there are so many other medical, like, that could be a whole podcast on its own, like, ways women are not being treated properly in the medical field. Ooh, pushes my buttons. <laughs> And I mean, it's still, you know, you know, breastfeeding in public is still, still like a big deal. It's terrible. It's seen as such a, uh, instead of it being a personal decision, it's seen as a public conversation. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. You had a kid, as long as you're feeding the kid, like your, your decision can't be, I'm going to leave the kid in a quarter for three days. But as long as you're like feeding the kid, like whatever. <laughs> It's, it's on you. Um, and then in 1960, which many people, this is by far one of the most controversial pinpoints in history regarding feminism. Some people will tell you this is really where women started to get a foothold in their medical rights. And some people will tell you a professor at Clarion University once told me this, fun fact, this is where the decline of the family started. <laughs> so bear with me. In 1960, the Food and Drug Administration approved the oil contraceptive pill. The pill was made available to the public in 1961, which then made it easier for women to have careers without having to leave due to unexpectedly becoming pregnant. It also greatly decreased the number of pregnancies. So my grandmother, she, I won't tell you when she was born because she'll be mad about that, <laughs> but she was one of four. Her grandmother was one of like 12 or 13, I think. So this is really where you started to see like, we're not having litters of children. We're having a house full. Yeah. And 
of course, it did allow you to wait. They weren't having children as young because they could wait a little while and be a little more financially stable. You weren't having two kids in a one-bedroom apartment. You were getting house and then having children. Um, that being said, the pill was not, though it was available to the public in 1961, it was not accessible to the public in 1961. So even today, insurance does not always cover contraceptive pills. Um, and back then, it was arguably even worse. So low-income households, minority households, um, they it was not an accessible option for them. And so they were still struggling with that, having a lot of children, um, not being able to continue careers because they're having these pregnancies. And um, it would be illegal to do so now, but back then a boss could fire you. If you had three pregnancies, within a period of time, he could say, this is too much. I can't keep replacing you. You, you need to go home, go home and be with your family. And it, and it leads to the idea of women being barefoot and pregnant, meaning that they have no means to be able to go out and make a living and do anything for themselves. We remove any kind of access to bettering their lives in whatever means that means for themselves. And also, you know, being pregnant and not being able to control when you want to start a family, if you want to start a family. It's really, it's really hard because it's, again, it's just kind of like that breastfeeding idea. It's seen as such a public conversation instead of it being a private conversation between the woman and her doctor, because it really shouldn't be anybody else's decision if they want to use contraceptives. Yeah, and, um, I mean, now any woman who has discussed this with their doctor, knows there's so many options. You know, there's the pill and IUD. Um, what is it? Nexplanon goes in your arm. You have, um, oh, you have the shot. You have like a depo shot. There are a lot of options available. So, you know, if a woman has any kind of side effect or anything that she doesn't like, there is a way of going about it another way. And side effects are an important thing to consider. Any woman who's ever taken the pill will tell you there is a period where you take it where you're more susceptible to depression, you gain a little weight. You know, there are intense side effects that come with oral contraceptives, and they were much more um, taboo to discuss back then. So a woman may start taking the pill, and her husband would know you've gained a lot of weight, you're kind of grouchy you know, what's up with this, and so she would stop, which, I mean, isn't okay in any fashion, and I mean, you and I discuss this all the time, the idea that when men were given an oral contraceptive that held the same side effects as women, they ended the trial, yep. you know, they cited weight gain, and mood fluctuations, and hormonal imbalances, okay. and that is just accepted as part of the experience for a woman on the oral contraceptive. And one of the reasons people feel this way is because the woman's oral contraceptive was introduced in the 60s. And so it's just seen as the way to go. The male 
oral contraceptive, I believe, was first introduced in the 80s, but I'm not entirely sure. That sounds right. Don't, but I'm not, yeah, I, like, don't fact check us on that one. The rest of the stuff you can fact check us on, and I'll put citation lists (laughs) on the YouTube channel that you can check out, but don't fact check us on when the male contraceptive started. But so it was still newer, and so they ended it, and that was like a discussion among women of like, wow, you you couldn't take it, but it was just expected of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing I feel like we should talk about real quick before we go further in this wave is just that also uh, hysterectomies are just as valid as a form of contraceptive. That is so taboo in our society, especially for younger women, because it's an idea of you're gonna change your mind because your maternal instincts haven't like fully surfaced yet. Ah. I don't have maternal instincts. I'll just put this out there. I don't want children like ever. They kind of make me nervous <laughs> and like I don't have maternal instincts. So it is a discussion I've had with my doctor about hysterectomies and the response I was met with was they like you to be in your 30s They like you to have at least two children, one of each gender, and they like you to be married. The only way you can circumvent that is if you have a medical condition. And even if you have a medical condition, you do, it needs to be deemed not life-threatening, but life-impacting. If it's not impacting your life, they will not remove it. Honestly, I feel like you'll be able to have it done because you think if you do change your mind if that is some if that's a if that were to ever happen if you regretted the decision adoption is such a necessary part of our society and such a worth worthwhile experience that I think people don't like value enough so I think that there's so many other ways of being a parent to somebody there's adoption there's surrogacy like there's so many other options and vasectomies which are arguably the male counterpart to a hysterectomy you can have it 21 yep no wife required no children required and the argument there is that they're easier to reverse but like are they are you really going to go in and get snipped twice or is it more so just that women are seen as that is part of our life journey that we have to have and going against it is so against the norm that it's unthinkable. Which is an issue that does arise in the second wave of feminism, this idea of women who don't have children. Um, Previously before this, because contraceptive wasn't available widely, um, women who didn't have children were seen as having a medical issue. And so in the 60s, it really became popular for women to not marry and to not have children and that was like wild (laughs) people were like this woman is crazy and she's like no I'm just really having a good time over here in the 60s the the president was Kennedy and Kennedy's administration made women's rights a key issue and part of the new frontier he named a women a woman to many high-ranking posts within his administration Um, He then established the Presidential Commission on the Status of Women and had Eleanor Roosevelt chair it. (laughs) I love Eleanor Roosevelt. Like, I, ah, 
Mm, I want an episode on her so bad. <laughs> um, the commission was also made up of cabinet officials, senators, representatives, business people, psychologists, sociologists, professors, activists, and various public servants. So it did have a wide variety of people on it, though you'll notice that all of these professions are typically associated with mid to higher class income. None of these are low class income groups. The report recommended changing its inequality by providing paid maternity leave, greater access to education, and help with childcare to women. So this does address those issues that we mentioned many women faced leading into the second wave um, and helped to resolve some of the discontent that women felt. Another way the discontent was resolved was that many women led to form local, state, and federal government women's groups along with independent feminist organizations. Um, so they now had this social and political aspect mixed. Um, during this time, I know my great-grandfather always talked about my great-grandma going to bridge club, which was like a social aspect. Um, so this does meet sort of those social and political involvement aspects um, that you really need to have a fulfilling life. So there is like a hierarchy you need to fulfill and you need to have, you know, your basic fundamental needs met, your water, food, shelter, and then familial, social, and as you go up, you have, I think you have like political and educational. Um, so they were starting to fill, fulfill more needs to have a fulfilling life. Then in 1963, Betty Friedan wrote the best-selling book, The Feminine Mystique. The book discussed primarily white women and explicitly objected to how women were depicted in the mainstream media and how placing them at home limited their possibilities and wasted their potential. So this was really the first time that people spoke about women having the exact same potential as men. Um, before then, it was talked about they had potential, but their potential was often discussed in the realm of um, smaller jobs, you know, part-time jobs, and then going home to the family. So you could have a job while your kids were in school, or even in the school, and then you would go home with your children. Um, she actually conducted a survey using her old classmates from Smith College, and her survey revealed that the women who played a role at home and the workforce were more satisfied with their life compared to the women who stayed home. The women who stayed home, not only were they less satisfied, but they actually showed feelings of ag agitation and sadness. Um, and I think, which too, I think it said something in there about how, like, their marriages typically had more fulfillment, too, like, emotionally. So, yeah, so this did tend to breed contempt towards one's spouse. So the idea that you're keeping me here, the children are keeping me here. Um, 
And that idea of constantly maintaining this perfect lifestyle also breeds this anxiousness of like, do they know that I'm not happy? Do they know that like, I wish I was like these other women who were making fun of? Um, so there is, I mean, it is really tragic to think about the women who sat at home, you know, with hallmark depression symptoms and really never received treatment because no one really knew what caused it and knew how to solve it. Um, so this is often seen as a huge catalyst, this survey coming forward. Um, within the second wave of women saying, look, it's not just us saying this, like even the women who say they're fine staying at home actually aren't fine with staying at home. They do seek some sort of fulfillment. And it didn't have to be, you know, a high ranking position in a presidential commission. You know, for some of these women, this fulfillment would have been a part time job or a little volunteer position, just something to get them out of the house. And it's a common thing you hear from new mothers. They feel like they're trapped at home with this infant and it breeds this like almost animosity of like, I want to leave, I want to get out, and they can't. They want to be seen as more than just one. So I think is is normal for any person in any any gender, you know, like no one wants to be one thing twenty-four seven. Yeah, and it's it's almost it's unrealistic and it's almost irresponsible to try and assign someone a role with the idea of that's all they'll be. So if you just think about whatever your job title is now. It's not the only title you wear in your life. So you're also someone's daughter, someone's son, you might be someone's mother, like you wear many titles. And so to assign someone the overarching title of housewife and expect them to only fulfill that title is really unrealistic. Um, so this has really all led to this growing movement and the first time the movement is referenced as such is in 1964 um by frieden she founded the national organization for women or now in 1966 despite the early successes now achieved under frieden's leadership her decision to pressure the equal employment opportunity to use title seven of the 1964 Civil Rights Act to enforce more job opportunities among American women was met with fierce opposition within the organization. Um, many of NOW's leaders were actually convinced that the vast number of male African Americans who lived below the poverty line were in need of more job opportunities than women in the middle and upper class. Um, and this is where the idea of those political organizations really comes into play. So with now, these women are involved in this organization and they're receiving that fulfillment there. And these women don't necessarily need the job to survive. These African-American men did need these jobs. Like they were providing for their families and they were making sure their families survived. Um, because of this and because of the backlash it was met with with the idea of 
these these minority groups are just now receiving these rights and now you're trying to take them again. Um, Frieden did step down as president in 1969. Um, that doesn't mark the end of the movement, nor does it mark the end of now. Um, now continued through a large portion of the movement, um, just again, just as almost like a social political club that women were involved in fighting for various um, various equalities. Um, so we don't want to end the second wave on that negative note. So I do have some victories of the second wave. Um, the Equal Rights Act is obviously a huge victory passed in 1964. And then the Equal Employment Act or the Equal Employment Opportunities um, of Title VII was a huge deal. So it was this idea that you couldn't deny someone because of their race or their gender or um, religion, political affiliation, any of those things you couldn't cite as a reason for denying them. There were also a couple of landmark Supreme Court cases, one of which being Griswold versus Connecticut, which was um, a landmark Supreme Court case that ruled that any law prohibiting contraceptives violated one's privacy and one's rights afforded in the Constitution. So with the introduction of oral contraceptive, there were states who tried to pass laws that you couldn't take them or um, employers that said, no, we won't hire you on them, various things like that. And the Supreme Court really said that is between a man and a woman. If they want to take contraceptive, that is their decision. That is, you know, it's this idea of what happens in your bedroom stays in your bedroom um, that has really held supreme through many cases. Um, so it did allow sweeping contraceptive. It did not afford insurance on contraceptive and that is still being fought today, but I have faith we will get there eventually. <laughs> Um, in 1967, an executive order extending full affirmative action rights to women was passed. So it stated that if you had, you know, if Walmart employed only men, they would definitely look into Walmart and be like, um, you couldn't have hired like five girls. <laughs> couldn't find women anywhere. <laughs> There's like a lot of them. In 1968, EEOC decision ruling that Oh, ruled sex segregated help wanted ads were illegal, so you couldn't only ask for women to apply or only ask for men to apply. Um, for some reason, segregated help wanted ads have been like really popular. So um, they used to be based on race. I remember, you know, my family talks about the Irish need not apply and the Italian need not apply in my hometown. Um, and really that continues everywhere. There were times where it said Jewish need not apply, which is just really weird. Cause like, if you need help, like I always look at it <laughs> as like, I'm stranded on the side of the road and a car pulls over to help me. And I'm like, oh no, I don't accept help from red cars. Please keep going. And I'm like, like, I wouldn't do that. I might be like hesitant, like, Oh, I've seen criminal minds. Are you going to help me or are you going to like murder me? 
but like it just always seemed weird to me but they were ruled illegal in 1968 in 1972 and 1974 respectively title IX and the women's educational equity act were passed so title IX, um a lot of people don't really think about this, but Title IX affected not only sexual assault cases, but also making sure women had the same opportunities as men. So making sure, you know, if you have so many male athlete opportunities, you have the same number of female athlete opportunities. Um, and that was actually fairly close to me. One of my friends actually went to Grove City. Grove City refused to abide by Title IX. And so they continue to not receive federal funding and the students who attend there continue to not receive FAFSAs and FIAs and all sorts of federal funding that they can't get because they failed to follow through with Title IX. And, and what, like the reasoning behind that? I didn't know that. Um, Grove City is um, a private school and at the time they just weren't offering the same athletic opportunities to women and they felt that um the federal government shouldn't be allowed to mandate what athletic opportunities they offer hmm. so they said no and the federal government said well then we're not we're not offering your students federal funds um and they continue to this day to not receive federal funding most of their students are funded by scholarships that's crazy. Um, yeah. So earlier we talked about you could fire a woman or prevent her from being promoted or hired based on this idea of she's pregnant or she could become pregnant. Um, in 1978, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act was passed, so women could no longer be fired simply for pregnancy. The outlawing of marital rape was passed in some states throughout the act, but the last state did not outlaw marital rape until 1993. For context, I was born in 1998. <laughs> in case you guys are like trying to timeline it, that's, that's where we are. <laughs> um, no fault divorce. We need to keep things in mind because like, that's literally like, yesterday yeah that's my parents lifetime that's some of my cousins lifetimes um you know to think that this idea of it's not rape if it's your husband when really anytime you say no and an advance is made it is rape regardless of the gender of the people involved regardless of the relation to you of the people involved no is no. Yeah. Um, the legalization of no-fault divorce was legalized across the country during this time, but was not legalized in all states until 2010. So in 2010, I was in like middle school. Like if, if it were the 1800s when it was 2010, I would have been married. <laughs> I would have been old enough to be married in the 1800s in 2010 when the last state legalized no-fault divorce. And no-fault divorce is really just, we don't love each other anymore. Yeah. And it's both parties admitting like they didn't do anything wrong. 
we just don't want to be married. Yeah. Which is a valid thing. <laughs> like, and the thing it is, happens. In the past, had 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 to stay bound by at least a legal document that they were married, even if they were living as non-married people, you know, through not having, like, they couldn't, uh, it's just so infuriating to me. And what would happen is, like, they would meet, and it might be an amicable divorce, so think of, you know, someone who just drifted apart, and they don't love each other anymore, they're still friends, they still talk, there's no hatred between them, and so one party would just admit fault. They'd be like, yeah, so I cheated. We want to get divorced. And so that's what the record would reflect. And they'd be like, oh, he cheated on you. And she'd be like, no, but they wouldn't let us divorce unless we said someone cheated. So you've now tarnished a reputation for really no reason because just let them get divorced because they don't love each other. <laughs> then what most people really recognize as a huge win for feminism. In 1973, Roe v. Wade was passed, which legalized abortion, um, allowed across the country, yes. It, you could not have a law preventing women from getting an abortion. Recently, we have seen states try to limit abortions, so to six weeks, um, to the first heartbeat, to various points. Caitlin, I think you can speak on this, but just so everyone is aware, when you conceive is not when you find out you're pregnant. Um, yeah, and I just want to say that with Roe v. Wade, it's not just abortion. It has to deal with um, the ability to have education on uh, on any type of sexual education. It deals with the access to contraceptives. It's not just, that's a very common exception that it's just the abortion bill, and it is not. There are so much, so many other interconnected to that. And that's why for a lot of people it can be such a controversial topic because you could say I'm for Roe v. Wade and people will automatically think, oh, you're for abortions, but that is not necessarily true. It can also refer to, hey, I think everyone should be taught what happens to your body when you go through puberty and when you have sex because I think that that rule like prevent people from having children at a young age that don't understand how it happened because I don't think that's right. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, there are a lot of different stages um, with when they think uh, abortion, like where, like you were talking about, Taylor, with uh, stages of pregnancy, and a lot of women don't usually know they're pregnant until at the earliest 10 weeks, you know, and even then it's sometimes not even that. Um, it's very, per it's a very personal experience, uh, and a lot of the other is, you know, allowing it, but only for medical, uh, medical reasons, like if it's pregnancy that can result in, um, a genetic predisposition for a child that would be life impacting, or if it will hurt mother in some way. Um, mm -hmm. there are so many moving parts with Roe v. Wade and with what is happening right now in our political climate. Yeah, and... Like Caitlin said, Roe v. Wade is not just abortion. There were a lot of parts to it. It really 
took care of the reproductive health aspect that um, the second wave fought for. And, you know, sex education doesn't have to be medically accurate in all states. Only 13, only 13 states require that sex education be medically accurate in the United States, which is crazy because here's the thing. We would be throwing the hugest hissy fit if we were allowing that to happen with a history class. Imagine you being a 10th grader going into a history class and being told George Washington was the 17th president of the United States and he found the cure for AIDS and nobody fought the teacher on it. And you went on for the rest of your life until you were 40 thinking that and then you said it and everyone was like, that's wrong. Yeah, like, I think that's important to point out. It's not that everyone in the class believes that. Like, roughly half the class is sitting there thinking, no, that's wrong. Like, this man, like, this person, like, George Washington was our first president, not our 17th. Like, this teacher is wrong. But they don't say anything. Because it's a taboo topic, and so you just think it in your head. But then there are students who are sheltered or just haven't come across that type of um, conversation. So they'll just take it for what it is as truth. And then they go forward in their life and base their decisions off of what they've been taught. So <laughs> it is, um, it is wild to think that. So if you have questions that you had in sex ed, maybe like Google them, see if they lied to you, see if your state requires medical accuracy. Yeah, and I think it's really important to break down that barrier of sex education being a contra controversial topic. Um, it's a very, uh, obviously it's a very personal topic because, you know, it's something that people don't want to talk about. However, it is so important that people are taught properly on how to take care of themselves, and that's the first and foremost reason why I think it needs to be conversed about more yeah so next time you hear roe v wade don't just think abortion think yeah. sex education think contraceptive think sexual health pap smears all those fun things yeah. that being said some people don't even consider roe v wade to be the greatest achievement of the second wave some people consider the changing social attitudes toward women to be the greatest success. So women were finally seen as actually equal to men and they actually had potential. They weren't just, now this, this wasn't in the 60s, this was towards the 80s, but they had the same potential, they could carry the same careers and support their families. Um, Second wave feminism also affected other movements, such as the civil rights movement. So again, we see, as we saw in the first wave with the abolitionist movement and the first wave happening concurrently, we see the second wave and the civil rights movement happen concurrently. There was also a student's rights movement. So this idea that, you know, students deserve to be protected by their schools and afforded equal educations and proper educations. Um, and women sought equality within these movements. And so second wave feminism, unlike first wave feminism, sort of adopted these movements as their own. Because while, you know, the civil rights movement and the students' rights movement wasn't their primary goal, 
it affected their people. And so they did adopt them and move forward with them. In 1965, in Sex and Caste, a reworking of a memo they had written as staffers in civil rights organizations, SNCC, Casey Hayden and Mary King proposed that, quote, assumptions of male superiority are as widespread and deep-rooted and every much as crippling to the woman as the assumptions of white supremacy are to the Negro, end quote. And that in the movement, as in society, women can find themselves, quote, caught up in a common law caste system, end quote. So they really saw this idea that these groups are experiencing the same issues and they'll be heard better if they speak together than if they try to speak over each other. Um, which really shows that they did learn from the flaws of the first wave. They did learn that speaking over each other doesn't get you everything you want speaking together will get you farther. Um, it's also thought that while we don't have a clear-cut ending to the second wave, um, the 80s feminist sex wars <laughs> is thought to sort of transition us into the third wave. Um, and the sex wars are generally transitioned, or not transitioned, generally described as two sides where one is characterized by anti-porn feminism and another is characterized by sex positive feminism with disagreements regarding sexuality including but not limited to pornography erotica prostitution lesbian sexual practices the role of transgender women in the lesbian community which is still continuing today sadomasochism, and other sexual issues. Yeah, and I think that's a really good transition into what happens in the third wave of feminism, uh, because we see all of these, uh, we see all of these movements that are separating people based on labels, and that's the entire premise of the third wave of feminism. So the third wave of feminism began in the 90s as a reaction to the lack of inclusion previous waves had towards women who weren't white, upper class, cisgendered, able-bodied, and heterosexual. So you can see what a narrow class of people feminism was working forward um, for. And I really appreciate this wave and had it existed because the main philosophies were to establish intersectionality amongst the different types of women that there are and to establish that the idea of quote unquote being a woman isn't a quote unquote one size fits all experience. We as women are in charge of defining what our femininity means to us. Um, and for the listeners, yeah, and I think, go sorry, ahead. Kate. No, go ahead. I think that's a big thing and you and I have discussed it. Feminism isn't about saying don't be a stay-at-home mom or don't be, you know, a devout Christian. It's about saying you don't have to be. Yeah. If you want to have a family and stay at home, that's great. And if that's fulfilling to you, that's amazing. If you want to go do something else to, I don't know, live on an alpaca farm and knit sweaters every day, that's another option. That's okay too. <laughs> Whatever you want. <laughs> Exactly. And that idea didn't come about until the 90s. 
Um, and for the listeners that don't know, intersectionality um, examines the interconnected structure of society that includes race, class, gender, sexual orientation, and any other defining characteristics. Um, and there is such importance in considering intersectionality when examining feminism. We as women need to understand that women's issues are black rights issues because there are black women. Women's issues are poverty issues because there are poor women. We can't and shouldn't define women's issues as they relate to one type of woman. Um, with that in mind, we have to recognize that women are not only treated differently because they are women, but that their gender combined with all these other social classes they have and experience drastically changes um, how they are perceived and how they go about living their life. Because me as a white cisgendered woman will experience um, a situation one way and somebody who is homosexual and not white and uh, maybe not able-bodied will go through a completely different experience given the same situation. Um, and that's what the third wave looks to do. It looks to examine those inequalities and those differences and acknowledge them, which is so important since like we talked about in the first and second wave, there was such a lack of inclusion in looking at those experiences and acknowledging them and appreciating them for what they are and how they come about. Yeah, it was just this idea of women need rights. Right. They didn't define these women need these rights. And that doesn't work. Blanket statements have never worked and blanket statements never will work. Absolutely. Um, a key player in this wave was the Riot Girl, G-R-R-L, for those of you who don't know, have never heard of it. Um, it was a movement that began in Olympia, Washington. And it was a meeting held to discuss how to address sexism in the punk scene. And the women decided that they wanted to start a girl riot against a society that felt they felt offered no validation of women's experiences. Um, so they coined the phrase girl power as we know it today. And it's good to mention that this movement uh, was mostly observed through the punk and scene music era. So if you go through and look at any music from the 90s, that's where you really begin to see these ideas and ideologies come about of women wanting to better address sexism and uh, validation of like what it means to be a like a gay woman or a black woman or anything like that, you know, defining your your differences and explaining them as empowering. It's really interesting because I didn't know about it, but it, you know, the '90s is we were born in the nine, late '90s, so I yeah, we were we were the end of the '90s, and I, but you know, we now we just accept it like girl power. We've grown up with it, we've acknowledged it, but I had no clue that this is where it stems from. I knew feminism, as we know it today, like, this idea of, like, sort of rough feminism as compared to the soft, like, please give us rights feminism of the first two waves, this very, like, I want rights, I will get rights feminism. I knew it came from, like, I always heard it referred to as the underground scene. I didn't realize some of the phrases we used came from there. 
I had I had just assumed that the phrase was coined as the movement grew, not that the movement grew out of the phrase. So that's really interesting. And then this idea of intersectionality is really key to the platform of the third wave because it better defines the goal of the feminist movement, which is, you know, we want to include all people in progressing towards equality, recognizing the obstacles that people face in obtaining equality. Um, and the other objective of this wave was like kind of ties into this is female empowerment. As we know, the media has great power over our minds and growing up, girls are given Barbie dolls and told that this was the height of female beauty. And as they age, they start to experience anxiety because their waist doesn't match up with Barbie's. Small tangent that proportionally Barbie's waist is 16 inches, which is about the same size as the average woman's neck. So, uh, <laughs> have you ever seen like the life-size Barbie? Yeah. It's, it's terrifying. Yeah, exactly. I will say Matt, uh, Mattel has g done a lot better at being more inclusive of different body types and proportions and races in the recent history. <laughs> they have, but I almost have a hard time applauding them because I was in high school. Like, I was in high school, and Mattel's been around since, I think, like, the 50s. Yeah. So, like, you're t we're talking early 2000 teens. I was in high school, and they're like, look, we have more than one white skinny Barbie that you can play with. I will say, though, one thing I will give Mattel credit to, they did used to give Barbie a lot of professions, which was actually taboo at the time to have this idea of like your doll could be like could be a vet and a pilot and so I will give them credit on that but I am holding my credit as far as like body types and um like race and ethnicity and I will say they have very few um disabled dolls yeah they they're mostly all able bodied yeah I agree. Um, American Girl, I'm calling you out on this too. <laughs> they do have they do have some mobility aids, and I believe you can get a hearing aid on your doll. So yeah, it's really American Girl. It's really interesting because that's a whole other conversation about how the how childhood toys are marketed towards girls and boys, and uh, all of how you know gender norms stem from those early interactions with toys and media uh but that's a whole other bag of marbles. um similarly we grew up hearing that you have to strive for these ideals that you see in magazines but at the same time not care because trying to come off as attractive makes you a slut and not caring enough makes you a prude so we have to like balance ourselves on these on this uh what's it called a uh tightrope yeah, we have to balance on this tightrope which is so annoying because it's impossible i'm not a gymnast it's not gonna work i can't do Can it i tell you something i was told as a child once okay. mascara is okay lipstick is not interesting when i was i was like 13 or 14 i was finally allowed to wear makeup and mascara was okay lipstick was not 
There's that line. <laughs> and I've seen you wear lipstick. Is, bad, bad, Taylor, bad. <laughs> Which has just stuck with me because I'm like, they're both makeup. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what's it matter? Exactly. And then there's the issue that if you're an empowered woman and you love to wear makeup and dresses and wear pink, which is me, does that make you a bad feminist because you're subjecting yourself to those societal um, stereotypes that are um, usually put on women? Does that make me a bad feminist or not? I personally don't think so, and neither did the people of the third wave. Um, they focused on abolishing the idea that there is only one form of femininity and the idea that one form is negative in comparison to other forms. We as women should not define our femininity based on anyone else's perception, only our own. And that was what the third wave looked at a lot. It was like, be a sexual being for yourself, not for the patriarchy. You know, dress up as however you want. You know, like, if you want to look sexy, do it for you, not for anyone else. Um, yeah. And that kind of, I know it kind of butted heads a little bit with the, uh, se the second wave and how we talked about, like, the anti-porn, anti, um, uh, like, uh, the other like sexual liberation movements, like anti-sexual liberation, because they saw it as women being exploited, which women are exploited. That's not to say that. But if a woman wants that, I guess it's like, if, that, if that's what the women is interested in, she has a right to that, is what the third wave would look at. Yes. And there's a difference between women being exploited in the sex industry, which they are, and a woman running her own sex industry. So OnlyFans accounts are run by these women, and they receive the majority of the profits. I do think OnlyFans takes a portion. Um, like, these women who run their own sex industries are not the same as women being exploited. So if your argument against, like, I don't think cam girls should have a job, is they're exploited by this profession, those women aren't. Don't worry about those women. Worry about the women in these industries who now can't get a job because every time they go somewhere, they go, oh, she was in that movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what the third wave looked at. And then, um, similarly, we should not cast judgment on another person's expression of their femininity because there is no wrong way to be a woman. And we are who we are and we deserve to be who we want to be. And that's like the entire premise of the third wave is just to establish that the first and second wave missed the mark on inclusion and to make up for it. This is what this wave looked at. Um, and because of this objective, many third wave uh, fem like feminists, quote unquote feminists, rejected the idea of being feminists. And they also reject that the third wave even exists because they no longer wanted to be tied to a label because they, they felt that that in itself was, in, like, uh, exclusive. And they wanted to be from that us versus them mentality. So, third wave is the most wishy-washy of all. It doesn't have a start end date. It's just, and, it, and then they also just don't want to be defined at all by anything. So, it's just so, it's like tying up a loose end for the first and second wave, while at the same time, the, the tie is invisible. 
And then after the third wave, we are uh, looking at the fourth wave, which is the best, uh, not the best, but it's the most interesting conversationally because we're living in it. We are in the fourth wave. The fourth wave of feminism is alive and we have lived through the introduction of it. Um, and the fourth wave of feminism focuses on sexual harassment, body shaming, and rape culture, among other issues. Um, I mean, I remember back, you know, this past, I would say, 10 years, everything that's come forward in the um, the media with, you know, different, uh, I, w I don't want to call them sex scandals, but like uh, different people coming forward to express their experiences related to um usually a powerful man figure exploiting them and taking advantage of them because they have a power that they don't you know there's a power uh difference and then the main component that addressed that kind of concern was the me too movement which strived to start public conversations about female usually female experiences and sexual assault and abuse that were usually overlooked um and that all began in around 2006 with Tarana Burke, who coined the phrase Me Too as a way to help women who had survived sexual assault. While she created it in 2000, 2006, um, the movement didn't really take off until Alyssa Milano tweeted, if you've been sexually harassed, harassed or assaulted, write Me Too as a reply to a tweet that she made. Um, and that quickly is what really got the, got the ball rolling with um, that conversation being in the uh, public eye, I would say. And, and I, I just, oh, go ahead, sorry. I just want to say real quick, people criticize the Me Too movement about being female-centered, and I will say it typically is very woman-centric. That does not detract from men who experience sexual violence in any way, who experience the toxic toxicity of rape culture. What it does say is this. If you're only concerned about men who are raped, and I'm concerned about women who are raped, you're not concerned about men who are raped. Because the Me Too movement is concerned about both. The point of it was to say, look at all these women who did experience this and didn't come forward. We have since been saying, look at all these men who have experienced this and will never come forward because they're scared. Because this idea that it's not believable, you could have fought her off, you should have liked it. How can a man... It's not that their stories aren't valued or that... that we disrespect them, but you can't only use them to shoot down another idea. Because that tells me you're not concerned about them at any other time. Yeah, and I mean, something I wanted to think about, like, when I was, when I was thinking about how I wanted to talk about the fourth wave was, um, the biggest thing I can remember when I think of the fourth wave, other than the Harvey Weinstein, uh, things that came about, is the, um, I always think of the mattress on the side of the road that somebody was raped on, and they wrote Me Too, and it started, people were, like, traveling to it to rape their story of like what had happened to them and I just think that's so 
it's so sad, but so empowering that we are able to have these conversations now. And I'm so glad that, that this is something we're living through because I would hope that when we are older, you know, and people that come after us won't go through the experiences that women of our generation and the generations before us have gone through, you know, mm-hmm. get past this, uh, what was she wearing? What were they doing? you know, blame culture and be able to have, because the, with, if we were to get past it, that would ultimately make the Me Too movement not necessary because the Me Too movement is regarding that this is happening and it's not an uncommon experience. And that, you know, not only did I go, not only did this person go through it, but that they went through it and then weren't able to talk about it. So hopefully I would like to see you know, women just being outright, women and men being outrightly able to come forward when they've been unjust, they've experienced injustice. Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, this idea that, I'm trying to think of like how to say this, this idea that we think all men are bad is wrong. Absolutely. Similarly, we don't think all men are rapists. We think it's wrong to protect the men who are. And if there are men who are protecting men who are rapists, they are just as wrong. And so the Me Too movement calls that out and calls these men out. And they also, it also provides this sort of safe space. And I know safe spaces get a lot of flack, but here's the thing. Here's what annoys me about a safe space. Your safe space could be your bedroom. It's a place for you to de-stress. And so this allows women to come forward. And the more women who come forward, and yes, it seems like there's so many women coming forward right now, but this is the first time in how many years that we just discussed that they've really had support. And so we will see this spike, but then we'll see this spike fall off. And if we continue to foster this support, we won't have to see a huge spike like this because we can address these incidents as they happen. Yep. And we, we've all seen it. We've seen a victim suppress it because they're embarrassed or, you know, they feel like it's partially their fault or they don't think anyone's going to believe them or they didn't realize this is going to sound like weird, but they didn't realize that it was an abuse of power. Yes. So if you sleep with a teacher, that teacher abused institutional power. So while you may not consider it to be a sexual assault, it is. So I think that is important to note that, you know, people see this spike come with Me Too, and it's not because Me Too is criminalizing all men. It's because women finally have a place to talk about it, and they're no longer suppressing these things. Yep, absolutely. And then we're at present day, so to end our podcast today, I think we should have a few conversations to some questions I found online, three to be specific. Um, the first one, which wave do you think was the most influential? So like, I, I struggled when I was thinking about this because like, 
I want, I automatically think I should be like, oh, the first wave is because we got the right to vote, you know, and that sets like a precedent for allowing us to be able to like voice our concerns. But I think m the wave that's most influential is the third wave just because it, it in made it more inclusive and inclusion is so important in fostering any kind of change because, you know, not only do you need the support from so many to be able to foster change, but to be able to make the change worthwhile, you need to make sure it is helping more than just one type of person, you know, and it's addressing the concern broadly, not just narrowly. I think that's what I think. What do you think? I am torn on this. And I think the third wave of the four is probably the most important wave. I will say that. Influential, I think I have to go with the second because it really established women's place within laws. Mm -hmm. And while those laws weren't always interpreted to be inclusive, I believe they were meant to be. When we say women should not be fired for being women, we mean disabled women, we mean black women, we mean Hispanic women, we mean lesbian women, like we mean all women. Right. So I think the second wave was the most influential and I feel like without the second wave, kind of establishing women in law, but then showing the important disparities that were brought about because of this, I feel like the third wave wouldn't have happened and we wouldn't have gotten this inclusive. Yeah. I this think, inclusive wave. I also think if the ERA would have been passed, we would have gotten less from, well, actually no. Cause I mean, with the ERA, the reason why we have like the 19th amendment and the um, different acts that we talked about that occurred in the second wave, that's all because we don't have an ERA because we have to re-go through and look at the laws we already have. And even though they say no person should whatever experience inequality, whatever, the way our, our constitution and everything is written is from a white male perspective. So if we want to ensure that people get the rights that they deserve, you have to remake a whole new amendment or act to establish that, oh no, not only person, meaning white men, but also like, everybody else whereas if we had an era it would automatically we wouldn't have to keep going through and doing this all the time we would just have one establishing law saying all people all people um but yeah and then the other question was why is women's history sometimes overlooked i have a theory about this so well, I have two theories. So, like, history, history. So, like, pre, what do I want to say? Like, pre, I'm going to say pre-1920s. History is written by the winner. And you might say that not all of history has a winner, and I'm going to tell you all of history has a winner. There's a political winner. There's an economic winner. Someone was richer than someone else. There is always a winner. And I don't agree with that philosophy, but, like, you got to play by the rules sometimes. There is always a winner, and history is always written by the winner. And so this set the tone of a very 
macho white male telling a story, you know, George Washington, he lost two toes sailing the Delaware River to frostbite. He didn't really. That's not like a real fact. I'm just saying like he was so tough and fought this war, built this country, you know, whatever. And so we told these, these histories and these stories of these men throughout history because these were the records we had. They didn't keep records on their wives. They didn't keep records on the seamstresses. And, you know, Betsy Ross is this huge influential figure because she sewed the flag. She wasn't the only seamstress in America. Not detracting from what she did, just stating a fact, there were lots of seamstresses in America. And like, we only tell the winner's perspective and in the history history, pre-1920s, the history, or the winner, was always a white male. Yeah, absolutely. America, in America. And then, like, 1920s to, I'm going to say, like, 1970s, 1980s, we just continued this narrative. And I mean, I think that women had, like they were creating their history, but they were allowing men to tell their story. Mm -hmm. I'm part of that. And I mean, if you've ever read a book where like the point of view changes halfway through, it gets confusing. And I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying like, you figure from the 1920s to like the 1960s, 70s, we were still telling white man's stories. We were teaching it to everyone. And so when you leave history class, you know, you leave knowing of, you know, Dwight D. Eisenhower and General MacArthur and um, Paul Revere, but you don't know that the first man killed in the Revolutionary War was a black man in a protest. You don't learn that because they didn't care about that. They didn't value that black man. They did value the white man. And so similarly, I don't believe that when they told their stories, they valued the women. And so they didn't include them. Well, I mean, look at Eleanor Roosevelt. She kind of was our first woman president towards the end, especially of her husband's term, because he was back cool. So. So, and I think there's a lot of, um, recently there's been a lot of, so just speaking of podcasts, you know, things you didn't learn in history, famous female historians. Um, but it is a very short version. Women's history is overlooked because the winner tells the story and we have yet to see a woman be the winner. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> My, uh, one reason of why I think women's history is overlooked is that misogyny is a box that defines all. And what I mean by that is that we typically as a society see female-centered things as bad and so when we talk about women's history there's going to be a negative connotation to it and so what happens is that because we have socially inbred idea that women's liberation women's history is somehow negative it becomes a taboo and we don't talk about it which then confines us but also as women but also anybody else who's involved in our movement so another example not tied to this to explain my premise more is 
um, I think the reason why gay men are uh, backlashed more is they have this stereotype of being feminine. And because a man is always supposed to be very manly, you know, I don't think it's about because of their sexual orientation. I think it's because, you know, they have this stereotype of acting feminine. And so because we don't like uh, women things and they are acting stereotypically women, especially as a man, we get that taboo. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a big reason why women's history is overlooked is that we just um, dislike it because it's all seen as taboo because it deals with women's issues. And then the last question is, how would the USA be different if women never gained the right to vote, to sit in the Senate, or the ability to work or own property? Such a big Let's be story. real clear. <laughs> Millennial women will never own property. Millennials will never own property. <laughs> the, the, the houses are so expensive. Like, they're in, in a way, it's like, it's just a difficult time. No, on, on a serious note, um, I mean, just immediately thinking, we wouldn't, I mean, you and I would have never met. You figure we live, what, four hours from each other? We met through attending university, which wouldn't have happened. Um, so we certainly wouldn't have this podcast. And I mean, as far as, you know... It's so important that women sit in political political uh, organizations because there are, men can be feminists. Men can support the equality for all genders. However, they, they do not experience firsthand what it is to go through these injustices. And that is why it is so important that the people that experience an injustice are the ones who push for the change because they understand firsthand the, necess the necessity for that change. Mm -hmm. They have the passion usually to push for that change. You know, not to discredit anyone else who wishes to help, it's just that you're fighting a fight for someone else and it means so much more to fight for yourself. Yeah. I mean, Immediately thinking, if they lack the right to vote, um, you know, you do lack that representation, you lack contraceptive, because realistically, it was women in political power that fought for these laws. Um, you would lack your female professions and um, female higher education statistics. Um, not to mention all the advancements that women have created, like, you know, all the doctors who create medications and things that are women, and all of these different engineers that are women, you know, like, all the different advancements we have, like, they would have probably came about, but maybe not as well, and maybe not ever. Henrietta Lacks, whose family has still not received um, compensation for her contributions to science. Just saying. Yeah. But there are, and, you know, saying, what about not sitting in the Senate? The Senate is mostly white men. Old white men. Old white men. Let's be clear, the Senate is mostly old, and it's mostly old white men. <laughs> um, 
so I do think, you know, we lack, we lack diversity in that Senate, but we at least have some diversity. Imagine if it were all old white men, as it previously was. Although they weren't that old, because life expectancy back then was like 40 years. <laughs> well, I mean, if we're going to so, think about age, like, I personally don't think the president should be the age they, like, they have that age barrier on the presidential seat, because I think the reason why they made it the age they did, which was, what is it? 30, 35. Yeah, I think it's 35 for the fact that people didn't live back whenever the constitution was written yeah i mean the wildest part to me about that is like i as a political science major i've taken a lot of con law courses and i've said before like what do we have a definitive reasoning and the response nine times out of ten that i get is well the older you are the wiser you are the this is not true. I see old people do dumb things all the time. All yeah. the time. Like, so, you know, if there was some aspect of, like, you know, you had to be 35 because they didn't want the president getting drafted, I would at least be like, okay, I see the logic that went into that. Like, you know, what happens when you pull the president's draft number? Do you go like, oh, whoops, obviously we're not drafting our president. Because then that creates that awkward double standard there. So is that like a reasoning? Is the idea that they should have to serve military service before they're president? Like, what is this idea? And it's just older people are wiser. Yeah, and obviously that's not true because we have presidents that have no political or experience. Yeah, so it's like wild to me that I'm like, no, no, no. I've seen a lot of old people do a lot of dumb things. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah if we're gonna have a minimum age I think we should have a maximum age you should not be 80 years old running for president <laughs> no 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 you retire to your country home thank you for your service to the country thank you for you know your contributions same as the senate like <laughs> you stay on the senate until you resign or die right well you have to get you have to get reelected. So does RBG just continually get re- I'm really dumb, friends. Oh, that was the Supreme Court. But well, yes, you- that's what, I meant. that's what I meant, sorry. Oh, um, so the Supreme Court, I have feelings about this too. <laughs> um, the Supreme Court, it is a lifelong appointment. Yes, that's what I- you can, you can resign and you can be impeached. I don't know that a justice has ever been impeached. I don't think they have. I could be wrong. Um, actually, I'm interested. So fact check us on that one. <laughs> Has a justice ever been impeached? The thing is, I love RBG. Do not get me wrong. She is a badass. However, she's getting, she, I, I think it's a good thing to constantly have a flow of new minds and ideas. And right now, everyone's focused on health. And specifically for health. So here is my thoughts. Not so our little um at the end of our podcast we say this is sponsored by the CU Engaged Coalition at Clarion. And this podcast itself is, but not all ideas expressed in this podcast are. 
So they give us the platform to produce this podcast, but these ideas are our own. So this is my feelings on the Supreme Court, not CU Engaged Coalitions. But I do just want to express this. I think we should have 10-year term limits on Supreme Court justices. And the idea with this is, so the idea with a lifelong appointment is you don't want your judicial rulings, your most important judicial rulings in the country, to come down and actually be a partisan decision of like, my, I'm up for re-election, I have to, you know, roll on the side that I think is going to re-elect me. You don't want that to happen, which I completely understand. My recommended solution would be 10 years, you're on the bench. At the end of your 10 years, they have what's called a retention vote which is just you ask the people, should RGB stay, no, RBG, (laughs) should RBG stay on the bench? And you check yes or you check no. That's all you do. If, If the majority checks yes, she stays for another 10 years or until she dies. If the majority checks no, then there is a race that everyone comes in. Because, like, my issue with that is, like, would I continually say yes to her because I'm afraid of somebody else coming in that would be uh, problematic? Well, she could run in the next race. Hmm. So, like, even if everyone says, like, even if it's a majority no, she could still run. So she could technically, like, I could pick between having her again or somebody new. Yeah. That would be a good system. So that's my proposed solution. And the idea with 10 years is it's just such a long time. Like, you figure, um, like, a two-year term limit, you're constantly thinking of re-election. Like, your thoughts are always, how are my constituents going to see this? How are they going to feel about this? Am I going to get re-elected? Six years, you know, you have a little bit of a buffer, and you're like, okay, like, I'm comfortable, but I, it's still on your mind. Ten years in a retention vote, like, you have to mess up to get put off the bench. Yeah. Like, and they wouldn't all come up at once. It would be because everyone would lose a retention vote or resign at a different time. And it also eliminates the idea of, like, I just disagree with the president appointing someone. I think that's dumb. They're, like, no other major position like that is it just appointed. Do I just pick someone? Yeah. Like, you figure my representatives, my auditor generals, like, all that, I elect. But my Supreme Court justice, he's just like, uh, this guy's good. Yeah, I agree. I think it should be something that the people, the people vote for. Yeah. That's just my thoughts on it. I know that's not everyone's. I know a lot of people like the lifetime appointments. Um, but it does, you know, it creates what they call legacy courts. So, like, you get a court established in the 60s, but then in the 80s, things are different, and you're still getting rollings from the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. And I make you wonder, too, like, is that why women, there aren't as many women on the Supreme Court? Is it because we're dealing with legacy courts from forever ago? Yeah. And I was like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, I was like this sort of attitude to it. People say, you know, when will there be enough women on the Supreme Court? 
and she once famously said when there are nine and that caused a lot of backlash because men said well wouldn't that just be sexism yes yes it would do you realize how upset you just got at the idea of no men being on the court like it almost takes even just the hypothetical idea of that for some people to realize like that's not okay like you're right it's not but and it makes you wonder, like, because you obviously probably wouldn't work out, too, to say you need to have, like, equal parts men and women, but, like, because there also there's nine, so it'd be five. Yeah, because <laughs> also you can't have an even number on a judicial court, because how are you going to break a tie? Yeah, but also, like, because then it goes to the part of, well, should it be based on sex, or should it be based on character? so many ideas. And that's an issue I have with Joe Biden just coming out and saying I'm definitely putting a woman as my vice president because now any woman he picks they're gonna be like oh he didn't pick her because she's qualified he picked her because she was a woman. Because he's trying to get the women's vote. Yeah if he'd have kept that to himself and just picked a woman because whenever whenever a woman gets in anywhere it's always, who did she know? They had to put a woman on staff. And that's what we talked about with, like, you know, the third wave. Like, that's, mm -hmm. that goes back with, you know, especially if they're a person of color or they face poverty in their life or whatever, you know, they're going to be like, how did they get there? Because you can't, as a woman, get there on just your brains alone, especially if you're overcoming other ups obstacles, like interse intersectional obstacles. So... And people talk about it, people who attend Ivy League schools talk about it all the time. You know, they're told, oh, you didn't get in because you're the smartest. You got in because they had to meet a quota. Mm -hmm. Like, no, Harvard, like, you're going to tell me that no smart women applied to Harvard? Really? Is that really what you're saying? Yeah. Like, it's just so insulting. And it's so hard to constantly be insulted as a woman. Mm -hmm. Well, this podcast has been very long today, but I hope you guys really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed talking about it. Who are we discussing next week? Susan B. Anthony, who we said was problematic this week, but she is the face of the movement. So, so we will be talking about her life and journey um, and her role in getting um, women's suffrage next week. Um, make sure you guys uh, like share, subscribe, everything else down in the boopity boop. Um, and thank you guys for watching us today. Bye. Bye. This has been Wednesday's Women, sponsored by the Clarion University CU Engaged Coalition. The thoughts and ideas presented in this podcast are meant to be for entertainment purposes first and foremost, and we do not claim to be experts in any field. As always, thank you for listening and make sure that you go out and register to vote.